Hey, it's Diana and Susanna, your favorite global health scientists. And you're listening to Global Caveat. Today, we're going to talk about minority mental health, the nuances of immigrant families, and the passing down of traumas over generations. But before we get started, we want to thank all our supporters who make Global Caveat possible. We appreciate your shares, your money, your subscriptions, and your reviews. So please, please, please go out and do that for us. You can also become a contagion by signing up as a patron for as little as $1 a month. And that's on our website. You can click the link in our bio on our Instagram as well. And this season, we have new content on Patreon. We will be hosting two Q&A sessions every month, one with us, your favorite scientists, and one with different guests we've had on the show. If you have any burning questions, requests, or things you'd like to ask with the privacy of anonymity, this is for you. Now let's dive in. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Esther Park, a psychotherapist based in Denver, Colorado. Hi, Esther. Uh, thank you so much for being here with us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where people can reach you um, after this episode? Yeah. Um, so, hi, my name is Esther Park, and I um, currently hold a doctorate degree in clinical psychology. So, it's just a big fancy term for I'm, I'm basically a therapist. Um, there's many different fields of therapy or like what you can do with that degree, but I chose to do therapy. I guess briefly, I came here from South Korea when I was three, and I've been living in the States ever since. Um, graduated from DU, undergrad, majored in psychology and sociology, and then afterwards I was like, well, what am I going to do with my degree? And I was like, well, I should probably go to grad school. So I went to grad school, actually in California. So I graduated from Rosemead School of Psychology, and then I did my internship in New York. So after I did that, I graduated and I moved back to Colorado. So I've kind of just been all over, essentially. In terms of reaching me, um, people can find me on my website, uh, www.dresterpark.com. I have an Instagram handle. Um, there's a place where you guys can message me or give me a call if they have questions. So just so people don't get confused, I'm Susanna, the other <laughs> host. <laughs> Um, and this episode is special because Esther is my older sister. Um, and I know that I usually introduce people, but to avoid confusion because we sound very similar, um, I am not the one introducing myself or talking to myself in this episode. <laughs> so I'm going to try and change the way I talk a little bit so that there's a little bit of distinction, but mostly I think I'm going to, um, listen as well more than interact i know it is gonna be interesting to see like if people recognize the difference though because you know it's all through audio yeah. um i think so. if they know us like diana knows me pretty well now uh-huh. so i mean i only listen to us talking for mm-hmm. a million hours every week <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um but anyway yeah. okay anyway so um going back to the topic of this episode. Uh, so what specialty within psychology and psychotherapy do you work with? Yeah, gosh, you know, that's such a like hard question to answer. It's interesting because when I was starting my practice, people were saying, oh, you got to find a specialty because that's what's going to make you more marketable and all this stuff, right? But yeah, I think the type of therapy that I do, so, you know, you hear about CBT or psychodynamic therapy or psychoanalysis. There's, there's all these different types. 
Mm-hmm. In the way that I generally work with people, it's more from a psychodynamic framework, which means it's more process oriented, it's more long term, it's more insight oriented, it's not solution focused. Although I do incorporate stuff like that. So what I have come to realize is in the way that I work with people, I'm able to work with a lot of different types of people too. Um, just by the nature of what psychodynamic therapy is, um, because it's looking more at, you know, the person as a whole and their dynamics and their history and it, it opens up so much more. So essentially I can potentially work with a lot of different types of presenting problems. I enjoy working a lot with trauma, multicultural issues, individuals who are processing their identity. Mm-hmm. Within culture, within adoption, within family systems, identity within like religion. And then apart from that, I work a lot with like, you know, basic stuff like depression, anxiety, trauma. I've had training in severe mental illness. So my training is like really broad. It's just more of what do I enjoy doing 20 plus hours a week? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you said it's not solutions focused. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like people might be really confused about that because mm-hmm. you go to therapy because you want solutions or you want to solve the problem. So what is it? Can you unpack that? Yeah. Um. So depending on what school of therapy you practice in, like people are going to have differing opinions of what they believe is going to be helpful for the client, what method works best, you know, and I think every school of therapy has a lot of validity to it. Um, so what, what I personally mean by solution focused is more like, it, it's just that. It's, you know, somebody comes in with a problem and they say, hey, I'm having a lot of anxiety or a lot of panic attacks and I don't want to have these anymore. A solution focused therapist, depending on, you know, what school of thought they're from, they might use homework. They might use more um, practical, you know, behavioral types of interventions to alleviate some symptoms. I think that is very, very, very beneficial. The way that I work though, is that I like to also understand where that behavior is coming from. Why are you having the panic attacks in the first place? I want to help alleviate those, but at the same time, the panic attacks are coming from somewhere, right? So the way that I kind of approach therapy and human nature is that I believe that we are all born with emotions and that emotions really navigate and guide the way that we are supposed to function and interact with the world, right? So an example that I give to people is like, hey, if you like drive up to your house and you see your house burning down, what is the feeling that you're going to have? And I propose that question to you guys. Like, what is the feeling that you guys initially have? I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> I have no idea what I would do. I mean, okay. Uh-huh. I don't know. I feel like I'd take my computer and like an animal or a plant and like run. Uh-huh. <laughs> like I don't I don't really know what I'd do, right? Yeah, in that situation. Yeah. Uh-huh. Or if I like came up and be like, do I go in and try to save stuff? I, I don't know. Uh-huh. Would imagine that like realistically that's probably how I would react. Like mm-hmm. in my mind, if I actually saw that I'd be I don't know. I'd probably just stare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like for, for you, you might have like the, cause you know, like when you see stuff like that, it's the fight or flight or freeze response that comes up. Right. But for you, you're saying like, maybe I'm going to freeze. Like I have no idea what I'm going to do. I'm just going to watch the house burn down and that might be what happens for you. But I guess like the, the bottom line is that 
whether it's fear, whether it's fleeing, whatever it is, like you, you have those feelings because your body and your brain are sending signals like, oh my gosh, something is happening and we need to figure out how to approach it. Right. So that's like one example, but like, there's so many different things, everyday life. When you have an initial response, your body is saying like, okay, we need to figure out how to navigate this. Do we get you to safety? Do we not? Do you fight? And then like, you know, whatever. And so I, because I do believe that like our brains send our body signals and it informs us the different emotions that we have. It's important to explore where those emotions are coming from and to unpack it a little bit. Right. So of course I want to help alleviate the symptoms. And that is one of the primary goals, but underneath that, there's all these different roots that I think contribute to the fear. Um, and if, and this is a big, if it's, it's, if, the patient wants that understanding. If they are interested in gaining that insight, then that is what type of therapy I provide is let's alleviate the symptoms and let's really get to the root of what is causing some of this. And so that's a little different from, I think, just solution focused. And I'm not saying that solution focused therapists don't do this type of work. I'm sure that many do. A lot of people do integrated work too. It's just the type of work that I do. I primarily focus on alleviate the symptoms and then let's really start exploring the word unconscious, right? What's underneath the surface that's just kind of bubbling up into everyday life that we need to gain an understanding of because it's clearly impacting the way that you're functioning and flourishing. I don't know if that helps answer the question, Suzanne. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, so, you know, I've had two therapists that I've seen. And my first one was very CBT focused. So CBT meaning cognitive behavioral therapy. And I think that's more of the solutions focus that you're talking about. Because whenever I went in and I would talk about something, um, she would be like, okay, like, let's try and reprocess this. Like, what can you do to make this better? That was also, that was always the kind of trajectory of the conversation, which I think works great if that was what I needed at the time. But I realized that wasn't what I needed at the time because I wasn't understanding what the problem was to begin with, like why it was ex- existing. And I wanted to get there first before I worked towards a solution. Um, but I know I have friends too who are like, I don't care about like where it comes from. I just know I have this problem and I just want to stop feeling this way. So I need to start having solutions. I need homework. I need to do that stuff. So I know there's, it does depend on like what you're looking for and what feels good to you. Yeah. But you know, it's an interesting thing what you're saying though. Like, I think a lot of research has shown that in general, a lot of Asian individuals prefer solution focused, more, you know, homework types of directive types of therapy. And I think that's a lot of it probably has to do with the culture, right? Like, um, sometimes I wonder how much of it is, you know, if you come from an Asian culture with a history where you didn't have time to process things. It was literally about survival with war and you don't have a lot of money to like sit down and be like, well, where is this coming from? Blah, 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 all these different things. Like you have this more, oh my gosh, I need to get on with my life. Just fix it. I have to make money. I have to survive. Like, I wonder how much of that has been ingrained over hundreds and hundreds of years. And so that type of mentality kind of comes through when maybe some some Asian individuals do seek out therapy and they want more solution focused because it feels better or more congruent. And they might not understand why it feels more congruent. It's just a hypothesis that I have. Yeah. 
also just going with like Asian American and like multicultural. Um, you happen to be a person of color who is yeah. tr- like a therapist, but frequently, like I personally have had like different therapists, and they've all been white. And it's been very difficult for me. So I always mm-hmm. frequently like went towards like solutions based because I was like, you don't understand me. Like you don't understand the things mm-hmm. that I ex- I've experienced. I'm not even going to bother trying to explain it. And I wonder if like just going with like the whole like maybe this is the process and like it's like ingrained, but maybe it's also the like not being able to find therapists as easily, like can't find someone to relate to because there's not a whole lot of people of color that are therapists yeah. as well. Right. So you can't connect. And I like I don't know how to even process having more people of color go into therapy because I think more and more like society is trying to help the problem of or it's not really a problem but like the cultural mentality of understanding what like mental health is and like understanding that these things aren't bad and they're not taboo right and it's like there's just not a lot and like you're someone who you came to America so you grew up here and then you went into this which isn't I, I don't think that's common so um like how I feel like this is the most backwards, random thought process way of getting to here. But how did you decide to do that? And like, how did you even decide to like go into that? Because it's not something that's common. And like, especially since um, you're first generation, like that's even more uncommon, I feel. right? Yeah, you know, that's, it's interesting, because I get asked that question a lot, like throughout grad school interviews, you know, because they're like, why do you want to enter into this field? And my honest response is, and this is a story that I, I tell often, Like my parents being the first generation Korean, they're not even, I don't even think they identify as Korean American. It's like, they're straight up Korean. Yeah, (laughs) Korean um, parents that they are, the two options that they gave me were to become a lawyer or a doctor. Right. And I think (laughs) they knew you couldn't be an engineer. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so I think, and you know, I think this is like something maybe a lot of Asian individuals can relate to is like lawyer or doctor, you know, that's, that's how they define success. And so I didn't think like I had a different option. So I was like, okay, well, I think I might want to become a pediatrician. First day of undergrad, I remember I had signed up for, um, chemistry class and it was super early, like eight o'clock in the morning or something. I could not find the building. And so. <laughs> I think I couldn't find the building, so I just went back home, and then I think I tried finding the building again, and then I went, and it just wasn't registering. Like, there was just all this stuff, and it's all centered around chemistry, so I was like, I can't do this, so I just dropped it. (laughs) Um, So I was like, clearly I'm not going to become a pediatrician. I'm not going to become a doctor. And so the next best thing that I thought in my mind was like, okay, well, I'll just try psychology. It's so popular. And, you know, I can also become a doctor. I remember when I told my parents that I was going to become a psychologist. They're like, what is that? But like, and the question they kept asking me was, I mean, you're still going to be a doctor though, right? Like you're still going to be doctor. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to have a white coat but I'll have like doctor in my name. And that was like such a source of pride for them, which it's taken me years to process and understand that it's it's a lot about their sacrifice and like teasing a lot of that out, which I mean, if you guys want to, we can kind of get into that later and what the pressures of what that means for immigrant children. But overall, like I decided that that's literally how I got into psychology. Now, as I've been like, in while I was in grad school and in, in my own therapy for many years, I realized again, the underlying reason why I probably geared towards psychology was because I needed to understand my family dynamics and understand why I was functioning the way that I was. 
And so I'm so thankful that I, I am doing what I'm doing. Um, but back then, if you ask me, it's because I feel like I had no choice. Now, when you ask me, it's more, I needed to understand more of these dynamics and how it's influencing the way that I function, how I am with my family, with my husband, just relationally how I am with people, right? And so I think over time, the answer hasn't evolved and it's become a lot more deep in terms of why I chose this profession. Sam, do you have anything? <laughs> I'm like, you've experienced the same, like many of the same life. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I, like, I don't... I, I remember growing up, I mean, because, you know, my sister and I were five and a half years apart. So when she went to college, I was still like in seventh grade or eighth grade. And I remember my parents' confusion and they're being like, so can she like prescribe medicines? You know, because <laughs> that's like one of the things that doctors, yeah. the, like the traditional idea of a doctor, that's what they do. Mm-hmm. And she'd be like, no, that's what psychiatrists do. And then they'd be like, then do psychiatry. And they're like, and she's like, no, that means I have to get an MD. And I don't want an MD. I want a doctor in psychology. And they're like, but you can't prescribe medicine. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I remember, yeah. I remember that, that memory popped up in my head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, um, I think, I mean, interestingly for me, I guess I'm lucky because my sister broke that barrier of what it means to be a traditional like doctor in a white coat seeing patients in a hospital Mm -hmm. um and for me being korean american american born um as and the second child like there are different i guess the expectations that my parents had in terms of like what they want me to be i think they i think they still definitely wanted me to be a doctor lawyer or an engineer the engineer part was still like in for me because I was better at math than my sister. <laughs> yeah. um, and those are all things that I had considered, but I think, I think, I don't know. And it, it could be because I'm also super stubborn and they realize that at a certain point, if I decide on something, I don't let it go very easily. <laughs> um, and so they get tired of like fighting me. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think that's part of it. But I, I think there was also just a huge factor in like my sister kind of breaking that stereotype of like what you have to go into and that success can come in many different forms and it also includes like you having to pay like pave your own path pave your own path in quotes um and so you know in a way like the reason why i'm able to go into public health and they don't understand what public health is still like they ask me so many times but they're very proud of me still. And there's not that same kind of confusion they had with my sister when she was like, I want to be a psychologist. They're just like, oh, she's in public health. And they're super proud of it. And they like want to tell their friends, but they have no idea what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I feel like the longer you live in this country, I wonder, again, like depending on your resources and what you have, if you gain more privilege, right? Like, meaning my parents, when they first came here, thinking that, okay, you can only be a doctor or a lawyer because that's the way that you're going to survive. Status is going to help you survive in this country. Which, in psychology, like therapy, the type of work that I provide for some of my clients, to be honest, it is a very privileged type of work. Meaning, Mm -hmm. if you have the money and you have the time, 
you can come to therapy and do long-term work. You can be in therapy for one plus years and continue that. It's like a very privileged type of space. And I recognize that because it comes, you, you have to have the money and the resources to do it. Um, and so, yeah, when I think about like, well, my parents being the immigrants, they thought this is the only way that we could succeed. And then I think trying to figure out my own path of what does it mean to be a Korean American and then also want to go into psychology, which is maybe a little different from what my parents knew. And then kind of breaking that barrier. And then now like with my sister, something that we talk about um, every now and then is like, you do, you have a lot more opportunities than I did. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I wonder if that can be translated into there's a lot more privileges that are given to you because of the breakdown of culture and norms. And we're warping some of the ideas of we're, we're making both cultures work and, and understanding like what privilege means for us. Right. Yeah. I don't know if that relates to, to you, Suzanne at all. I don't know. I, I think so. I mean, following up on that, like I, I wonder Diana, how it was for you as well, yeah. because yeah. you're, you're biracial, but then you mm-hmm. have you had us very Korean upbringing. Yeah, <laughs> like like look at her background. She has all those like jade jars and like. All those, like let me just turn the, Let me just hang it. on. There's. Oh wait, my gosh! Wait. Yep, there it is. Oh my gosh! I recognize. I didn't want to say anything, right? But I remember looking at your background. And I was like, oh my gosh, that looks so Korean. It's so Korean. It's, very it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, yeah, but anyway, uh, so. Yes, you're correct. I had like a very Korean upbringing. Mm-hmm. And I just like, first, I want to just say like, thank you to all the older siblings out there. <laughs> thank <laughs> you for like making it possible for us like younger siblings mm-hmm. to get away with a lot of shit. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Just being honest, because I'm the youngest of three. Yeah. Um, and like, I get away with so much more because my other like my mm-hmm. sister's did a lot of stupid things and then like they got the brunt of it because they were the first ones and then by the time uh-huh. it got to me my mom's like whatever <laughs> I just can't anymore <laughs> yeah um, but it's interesting because I feel a little bit opposite from what you feel to mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. because I'm the youngest and I'm also the youngest of all of my cousins and like Korean cousins and no one else became a doctor, or an engineer, or a lawyer. Instead, it turned to me, and they were like, you need to become a doctor. You need to do this, because you're the last one. Yeah. And someone in the family has to be a doctor, right? So I experienced, like, it was yeah. suddenly more of a, like, oh, we're out of people. Like, you have to go do this. <laughs> oh <my laughs> um, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. And then, of course, I went to, you know, do physical therapy, which is even less doctor than psychology to them. Because <laughs> they're like, what does they're that like, mean? oh, you, like, just, you just help people you exercise. Just help people? Can you do any medicine? Like, I can make, I can buy you um, topical pain reliever. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, Tiger no, bomb. we have Tiger Bomb. Yeah, yeah I'm like, yeah, Tiger Bombs. So you don't, no, I can't help you. <laughs> uh-huh. um, yeah, that was like more of the things that I experienced, and I like. Wow, sorry. I don't know if you can hear the background where like my nieces are just uh-huh. shouting. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. um, so I personally did not experience that much. I don't like. I don't think I've noticed much of my mom changing her expectations of us, mm-hmm. or at least me personally as being like the last of everyone mm-hmm. in like adjusting to living in America for a really long time because she came here when she was eighteen. 
And this last time that she's been in Korea, actually, she was mentioning how while she's there, she's had difficulties staying there and being there because while she's in New York, which happens like there are lots of like different Korean communities. So she's around a lot of Mm -hmm. other Korean people here. She finds it difficult to be in Korea where everyone's constantly speaking Korean. She like has to Mm -hmm. pause and stop. So like while she's there, she's noticing that she's more Americanized. But while she's here, she doesn't seem to act that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she acts very like holds on to being Korean Korean and not mm-hmm. Korean American. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure how that plays out in the like maybe becoming more lenient with like pressures and everything mm-hmm. on children. Yeah. Yeah. Were you gonna say well something? I was yeah, yeah, I was just gonna say it's super interesting you say that because the last time I was in Korea before this past summer was very briefly during like Christmas time after I studied abroad in Japan, which was like five years before. And that was, that was barely like a cultural experience. It was just more of like drop in, say hi to people and family and then like leave. Um, so this time around, the like, when I compared it to like the last time I had been in Korea long term was when I was much younger, like over 10 years ago. And like this time around as I'm older and I'm seeing like how Korea is and I'm there for two months and I'm interacting with people around me, I, I, I like understand what your mom is saying because it's like there's so much Koreanness happening. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, I don't know how to adjust fast enough to keep up. Yeah. Um, but then I come back here and I think about like my home in the States with my parents. And it was so Korean, like it was mm-hmm. not American. It was so Korean within the walls of my home. But I'm realizing my parents, the the Korean that I grew up in and the Korea that I experienced when I went to Korea, it was like we were in different um, eras. Mm-hmm. And the Korea that my parents had established in the America is the Korea that they brought back with them. Yeah. Or no, brought out with them, right? So yeah, yeah. brought from Korea. So it's like, they, that's like the period that they're stuck in and that's the Korea yeah. that they know. And because they don't want to let go of that part of them and it's so much of who they are, mm-hmm. that's like what they put on to us as like their offspring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then that's the Korea that we know that we grew up with. And so it was like really weird because I'm like, I'm thinking about like, this isn't the Korea that I mm-hmm. expected, you know, some parts of it. Yeah. And I'm like, but then like so much of what my parents think and know is outdated Mm -hmm. um and it's not representative of how korea has moved on since like the 20 30 years that they've been out out of korea yeah and i think like what you guys are both mentioning is so interesting because it's i do believe that it's a common thing that many immigrant individuals experience right so for example when i see individuals who are um either biracial or 1.5 1.5 or even for a second gen or whatever it is and they come to therapy it's like this weird identity gap of they so totally maybe understand the culture of their parents and then they so totally understand the culture of where they're living in but then you're kind of split in this middle of like but who am I really and you learn to function within both systems right and there's so much like stress and I think a lot of times like sometimes relational trauma between the child and the parent that can arise because they're functioning off of this identity that they came with. And then you as a child, you're trying to live up to their expectations because, you know, they gave up so much and you're 
you don't have the privilege of just going to school and just being who you are. <laughs> you like have to go to school and succeed and do all these other really amazing things because, oh my gosh, my parents sacrificed so much, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. it just gets like really hard. And when you try to talk to your parents about this kind of stuff, you also recognize like, oh my gosh, I can't ask my parents to let go, quote unquote, of this identity because it is their identity. You're asking them to give up or shift a huge part of themselves that like if they let that go, they're going to be like, I don't know who I am in this country anymore. And then, you know, so you understand the burden of that, but then you also understand maybe sometimes how dysfunctional it is. So like, I think a lot of times it's hard. It's really hard for children of who who have immigrant parents or who have immigrate, like whatever identity, if you're not full Caucasian, and I say that very like, I know that if you're full Caucasian, there's a difference too, because you can be adopted and there's identity issues there. So I don't want to just clump it all together, but it's, it's a very difficult thing to navigate. It comes up and it, it, th- those things can manifest in ways like depression, anxiety, identity issues, um, high functioning anxiety, where like you learn how to function at this really top level, but underneath you're constantly like feeling like you're not doing enough or, you know, whatever it is. So it, symptoms do show up when people have to navigate so many different things like this. And I think a big question that people do have is like, why why the special focus on minorities mm-hmm. and mental health? And I guess in this case, why the special focus on cultural minorities? I don't know what the term would be. Why the special focus on immigrant mental health or children of immigrants, I guess? Mm-hmm. Um, and as a practitioner seeing patients who come from immigrant families or have hyphenated identities, you know, whether they're biracial or multiracial even. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, I guess, what are just some common um, things that or patterns that you see? And like, is there a need for more therapy for these people? Or is it not Whoa. really that? Or is it like, huh? You actually broke up a little bit. Could you repeat oh. the last like two sentences? I'm rambling. I don't know what my question exactly is. <laughs> um, it sounds like you're asking me, like, what are the common themes that I'm seeing when I work with patients who identify as multiracial, biracial? Let's, well, let's, okay, let's back up. Okay. Okay, first, as a psychotherapist who is also a woman of color, Mm-hmm. And not just that, you're also a first-generation Korean-American. All that packaged together. And then you're seeing patients from all different types of backgrounds, issues, whatever it is. What is the need for therapy? Or why is there a need for therapy for minority populations in general? Well, I think first, it's going to be helpful if we identify like the generations. Because I think we throw these terms around, but for the sake of like maybe this podcast, when we say first generation, I, I guess like, what do you guys define as first generation? I go by what like the defined term is okay. for them. Like first generation being like you came here. Okay. Like from where, from wherever you came from. Okay. Um, so that's first generation. And then second generation is you were born here. But I okay. know that that's not typically what people consider. Like I know mm-hmm. that like the general public considers first generation to be what's born here. 
I think the way that I've always understood the generations and the way that I've talked about it is first generation is like if you immigrated here, right? And then you have this like subset of people who whose parents immigrated here. So like, for example, I would identify as actually 1.5 generation mm-hmm. because my parents immigrated. I also immigrated, but I immigrated when I was younger. Mm-hmm. So you have these individuals who came with their parents, maybe like early on or in their teens. And then second generation, I identify more as you were born here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you have these like weird nuances, I guess, to the generation. So um, that, that's how I've defined it. And when I talk to people, I say I'm more 1.5. My parents are one. My sister's second. I don't know if that's how you've defined it, Suzanne. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that's what dad used to say all the time. So. <laughs> yeah, because in Korean, there's this term, right, which means 1.5 generation. So I, I am curious to see like how other cultures have coined their immigration status and like what generation they define themselves in. And I wonder if it is different and if it's a very Western thing to like kind of clump it into either first or second, even though there's so many different parts to it. Yeah. So... I guess for the purpose of like this podcast, I'm going to identify as 1.5 because that's how I kind of um, understood my upbringing and that's how I understood clients and patients that come in. So the more work I did on myself and the more I talked to my sister and other immigrant children, I think I realized how, again, like the identity can feel so split. There's a lot of or can be a lot of fighting with the parents. Like, what do you mean? Like, my my white friends get grounded. Why do I um, get beat? Get beat, you know? Have to stand in the corner yeah. holding books over your head. Yes, exactly, right? <laughs> so many conversations like that. Like, um, well, I learned in school that this isn't allowed, and I'm going to call CPS. And your parents, like, Asian parents might say, go ahead, call 911, <laughs> you know? <laughs> So it's like a very, and I think us three can laugh about it because there's an underlying understanding of what that is. So we've learned to make jokes about it and understanding like, oh, we get it. Like we get the cultural nuances of it. But a child growing up with parents who have very strong value systems that they came with and continue to instill in their children. I'm not saying like that's a bad thing, but a lot of it does not sometimes align with Western culture. Western culture many times is very individualized. It's about, you know, the self and how do you create boundaries for yourself and creating, how do you become more healthy, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas many Asian cultures, it's about the group, shame, um, conformity. It's, it's about how you function as an individual within a bigger system. Right. Mm-hmm. And so a child growing up in these two different systems, it can be really confusing because on one hand, you go to school and you're taught like, oh, my gosh, you're so great. You're so wonderful. You have all this potential. You have blah, 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 blah. And then they go home and they can experience like, no, you need to do better. Do you know how hard I worked to, to bring you up in this country? Do you know how much I sacrificed? So it's like these very confusing messages of, oh, my gosh, so I have to think about the family. But I also think about myself. Like, how does that integrate? And I think oftentimes, unless you have an adult helping you navigate both parts of that and say, you are both, there's ways to be a healthy individual in a system that values, you know, togetherness, not that 
Western culture doesn't value togetherness, but it's a very different type of togetherness. Um, learning children how to navigate that is going to be very important. But again, immigrant parents, they probably don't have the resources to do something like that. Unless you come from a lot of money, a lot of status, and then you immigrate to the States, many times immigrant parents traditionally in the past, they come from honestly nothing. So they're too busy working. They're too busy trying to support you and get you the education. And they're working like 12, 16 hours a day. They don't have time to like understand their identity in this world and then help raise you. So you're kind of left to raise yourself. And as adults, I do see a lot of confusion. Like, oh my gosh, but I really want to do this. But then my parents, like there's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of not understanding, like you just don't feel integrated as a person. So a lot of the work that I do is like helping people tease apart, hey, what values did you grow up with that you want to take ownership of and say like, okay, yeah, this feels really good for me. But at the same time saying like, wait a second, Western culture says that this part of my Eastern culture is bad. Is it bad? Is it not bad? So a lot of questions that you might have asked yourself Many, many times growing up in therapy, you can ask them out loud and have a space to explore it. And through that exploration, you, you become more integrated and you become the person maybe that you've always wanted to be and feel okay about it. So I think it's important because a lot of minority individuals or multicultural biracial individuals, even though they may feel like they've had a space to process it, in this Western culture, there hasn't been a lot of space to process it because there just isn't. And I think in therapy, it provides them with that safety to be like, I'm so confused. Does that answer your question? Yeah. I mean, Diana and I, we talk almost on a daily. Um, and we throw around these jokes that you mentioned earlier. Like we just mm-hmm. get the nuances of having grown up. Korean and you know all these different just things going on from our childhood and one of the things that I thought about while you were talking was this concept of intergenerational trauma Mm -hmm. and I think that term is thrown around a lot in a lot of communities like ours not just in immigrant communities but even in the African-American community um you know Native American communities like there's a lot of different ways that intergenerational intergenerational trauma is talked about I don't think people who don't experience it maybe or maybe even people who are part of these communities they don't really understand like what does that actually mean what does that Mm -hmm. look like and maybe even like they're living it but they don't realize it's trauma that they're experiencing it's just Mm -hmm. way of life Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so like can you maybe kind of Give a definition or just a very simple um, picture of what is intergenerational trauma and how can it present itself? Yeah, I'm hesitant to give a definition because I don't know if I can actually give one that feels good to me right now. And I don't want to just throw a definition out there and then like have people listen to it and be like, oh yeah, that's what it means, you know? So I think giving an example of how I experience intergenerational trauma in the work that I do might be more helpful. So I'm um, always think about like, like child abuse. I think this is one of the biggest things, right? Is that many Asian countries have grown up in a system of what, what Western culture defines as child abuse. Eastern culture defines it as 
discipline. And it's, it's just very normal. This is the way that my parents discipline me. And in Asia, when you grow up in that system, I think in the past, I think maybe it's changing now, but in some countries, but you know, in the past it was more like, yeah, they're getting disciplined. This is the way that you're supposed to grow up. And what do you mean? Like my parents experienced this. And, and I think this is a, like one of the stories I remember talking to my own mom about, um, is that she remembers how when she was growing up, her own dad, so my grandfather, got into a fight with my grandma. And she remembers how like somehow after the fight, there was like a chopstick stuck in my mo- in my grandmother's head. And my mom, the way she talked about it was like, this is just kind of the way that you grew up. Like my parents were very loving. My parents were blah, blah, blah. She really loves them very, very much. And I love my grandparents very much too. But me hearing that story as a grad student in psychology, I was like, oh my gosh, that's (laughs) domestic violence. Yeah, Like that is so traumatic as a kid to see. But the way that she's learned to understand it and cope with it is more of, this was normal back in the day. Mm -hmm. This is how couples fought. This is how, what children experienced. And then, you know, if children were disciplined. She would just say like, this is how you were disciplined. And then, so that's what gets passed down. Right. And that would be how I define like intergenerational trauma, because the trauma of seeing domestic violence and being maybe um, like honestly physically abused yourself. And it's defined as discipline that gets instilled in you where like, this is how you discipline children, et cetera, et cetera. And it keeps going down. And then the mentality of that, even though you may choose to refrain from certain aspects of the abuse as an adult, what it's done to you in your mind, the, if you choose to have children, it's this, this fear of, oh my gosh, how are you disciplining your children? Are there remnants of that type of abuse that come up? So I think there's shifts in how it kind of transpires when you go throughout the generations, but it's still there. So a lot of times when I work with individuals who are immigrants, again, multiracial, whatever it is, and they come in, what I tell them is like, you are doing such important work right now because what you're doing is you're breaking a generational cycle. You're understanding what was healthy, what was unhealthy, and you are trying to make a difference for future generations. The work you do now in therapy is going to impact your generational line. Mm-hmm. And that is so important and it's hard, but if you stick it out, it's going to make a difference, right? And so that's one example that I can think of and it, it comes up a lot around like child abuse. Do you have any words? Because I feel like there are families out there who, or just not even families, but individuals who maybe grew up in very loving homes, mm-hmm. didn't have any kinds of physical abuse going on um but there was still remnants of i don't know emotional trauma or Mm -hmm. maybe just psychological so the reason i'm talking about this is because i met a woman who also was working in intergenerational trauma that was her research and she was talking about how um for um african americans their descent their ancestors were slaves right Mm -hmm. and mothers had their babies taken away from them forcefully 
and the ways that these mothers had to survive in that context was to shut off emotionally mm-hmm. right and so generationally like she said you see more and more um signs of detachment happening yeah. from the mother and the child even though yeah. as you go down the line like they're not slaves anymore right but this there's this like generational thing happening where just like cognitively they're yeah. they're like okay i can't i can't attach myself to this child as much so you see less and less like expressions of attachment yeah. and that affects how the child grows up yeah so i don't know if that is also intergenerational trauma i mean that's i mean that definition sounds fair to the example that you just gave you know and it's a real thing that happens so if we even talk about immigrant families who came and like they were so busy working and they didn't have time for their kids and you know like when you watch commercials on western television it's like this happy family who's at the park and having a picnic like whatever it is like they're all spending time together and being so loving and a lot of times immigrant parents didn't have the opportunity to do that so they were distant they could have been neglectful there's this idea of like you know the latchkey kids where kids are at home and they feed themselves and they do whatever they need to do because parents are off working so you kind of raise yourself And then you learn and internalize a lot of how to survive in that type of environment, how to do relationship in that type of environment. And then when you choose to have kids or when you choose to be in a relationship, those patterns are going to show up. So those dysfunctional ways of like, oh, well, yeah, my mom or dad or they weren't really around much, but I knew that they loved me because they provided food for me on the table every night. So then when you get into a relationship or you have kids, you're like, your kids are probably starving for affection in the way that it's like, mom, you want your parents to say, I love you and and show affection different ways. But the way that they choose to do it is like provide food on the table. Maybe not really spend time with you by going to the movie, like do all these things. But it's like, oh, did you eat? Did you do all these things? So again, it's this idea of like, you know that there's affection, but then you also may feel really neglected. There's parts of you that are starving for something more and you don't really know how to put words to it because it's so, it's something so much deeper and it's, it has to do with generations of survival and how the trauma has been passed down and internalized and understood and how, again, you are unconsciously passing those patterns down to your kids or in your relationships. So in therapy, it kind of helps navigate a lot of those things and bring to light maybe a lot of different patterns that you didn't even realize you were engaging in. And you're like, oh, wait, (laughs) is this healthy? Is this the way that I would want to be around my partner or my children? And asking those questions can be hard. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like this is just going to be like a hard pivot a little bit back because Mm -hmm. I was in like I had two thoughts earlier and one was about Uh the intergenerational trauma as a term so I'm glad that was addressed but the other thing Mm -hmm. I was curious with the domestic violence and Mm -hmm. kind of like the social learning theory and cycle of violence right so a lot Mm -hmm. of people that are immigrating um like sometimes they also stay in those settings where they were like could be fleeing from especially Mm -hmm. in like places that are like maybe conflicted by war or just really questionable political leadership. Mm-hmm. And if they're not seeking out or trying to actively change their behaviors or society's not changing their like behaviors, uh, and this might be something that, I mean, 
more thoughts that you have because you mm-hmm. work more with like personal than political things. But how mm-hmm. how do you you like as like addressing one person or talking to one person hopefully maybe impact more people around them, right? Because if if you're talking to one person and you're helping them work through that, like maybe things that they experienced weren't okay and they don't want to continue that and they're actively being like, I don't want to raise my child like that. I don't want to treat other people the way that I've seen people treat each other. Um, But then they might still be in a setting that continuously like perpetuates that or the society that's like, no, it's okay. Like how, like you were mentioning earlier, the Korea is improving in terms of like Mm -hmm. defining what's domestic violence, what's other types of violence, Mm -hmm. like what we shouldn't do, what is like, not accepted anymore yeah. um, but a lot of places aren't doing that yeah right? so how like how yeah I think like oh gosh that's such a tough position to be in it's like yeah. really tough because if you start to change and then everybody else remains the same it's so hard because you're like oh my gosh I feel crazy like is it me do and so my belief is that As you learn to grow and develop into this deeper part of you that I think you were meant to be, you will naturally be yourself with other people too, right? And as you experience more of you in therapy and like understanding and being grounded in in certain values and your thoughts and behaviors, I do believe that when you walk out the door, um, you will start to engage in more healthy ways with other people. And as those people have healthier experiences of you, they will start to question like, oh, actually I really like the way that you approached it. Maybe I could do it the same way. Where, how do you have this insight? So they might start asking questions. So it's kind of like this spreading what I think goodness can be, but it takes, it takes individuals, I think, wanting to be curious about themselves. So A concrete example would be if a parent is instilling in their child how to be empathic, right? Like, oh, okay. So example that I have is, um, you know, when I, when I watch little kids or like play with little kids, sometimes there's stuffed animals around, right? And so sometimes I'll be like, oh, look at this stuffed animal. Like, oh, the stuffed animal got so hurt. And then like I watch the kid's reaction and they're like, oh, what? And then I'm like, oh no, the animal's so hurt. What do you think we could do? And I start like petting the animal saying like, oh, are you feeling okay? Oh no, where do you think it's hurt? So I'm like modeling that for them, right? Like let's instill empathy. When somebody's hurt, what do we do? We ask if they're okay. We provide them with the support that they need. So asking children like, what what kind of help do you think this animal needs? Do you think we just need to sit here and be with them? Do you think they need a hug? Like, what should we ask? So different things like that. And what that does to the child, hopefully, is as they learn that, they might go to daycare or kindergarten. And when they see a friend crying or hurt, they can go up to them and say, are you okay? Are you hurting? Can I be your friend today? How can I be a friend today? So what I'm modeling for the kids they go out and do that. And hopefully as they do that with other children, other children can learn from that and spread that on. So that's just like a very practical example of, yes, honestly, society really sucks. Like unless the system changes, like we're not going to have this, this grand change of things. Right. So yeah, unless society changes, like you're not going to have this grand change. But if I think in those terms, it feels like so hopeless. 
So I just have to believe that the work that I'm doing with each person is creating some type of change within themselves and they can go out there or more boldly live a life that feels congruent to who they are. And I know that sounds so like, you know, oh, I don't even know, like fairy tale-ish, but <laughs> I do believe it. Like I have to believe it in the work that I do. I don't know if that answers your question. No, I think so. Yeah. Because I mean, it is it is mostly going to be slowly done. Because like, mm-hmm. even if the like, policies change and definitions change, it's not like overnight, suddenly everyone's mm-hmm. like, ah, yes, the definition has changed. I must now change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So clearly there is a need for therapy in general. I encourage everyone to get therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but also, ju- I think there is a clear need to talk more about um, this idea of what it means to be an immigrant, what it means to grow up as a child of an immigrant. Yeah. Or even if you're not an immigrant yourself or your parents are immigrants, what it means to come from a generation of yeah. ancestors who experienced trauma. Um, yeah. So I, but it's so hard. Like you are literally one of a handful South Korean people in Colorado yeah. who is a therapist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, like we could all probably count on one hand how many there are. Yeah. And in Diana's case, she's in a state with a bajillion people. Mm-hmm. And even then it's like, it I would be hard zero. to find a therapist. Yeah. It'd be hard to find a therapist <laughs> that you can feel comfortable with mm-hmm. and identify with. Mm-hmm. And like, even for me, I, when I was in Colorado, I was seeing a white therapist and she was mm-hmm. great. Like I'm not bashing her at all. I actually, I saw her for two years and she was, she was great. Mm-hmm. Um, but the therapist I'm seeing now in this very small town, <laughs> I just happened to find someone who yeah. she she's multiracial, but she mm-hmm. she gets the 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 thing that I'm saying when I talk about my identity. Yeah, and I don't have to explain to her why yeah. it feels this way. Yeah. She's just mm-hmm. like she her response is like yeah, and you know as like as like these identities like she's like I feel like that's probably you know, a part of it. And I'm like, yeah, it totally mm-hmm. is, you know? And mm-hmm. like she, it, there's a difference in response, right? And and I'm lucky to have found mm-hmm. that. So I guess my question is for people who, number one, want therapy but aren't sure where to start, what's your advice as a therapist? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and number two, what if they're trying and it's really difficult? What yeah. can they do in the meantime until they find someone that is right for them? Yeah, absolutely. I think finding a good therapist takes work. And yes, unfortunately. And oh gosh, like people can find, if you go to psychologytoday.com, it's filled with so many therapists, right? It's overwhelming. It is. And there's all these different titles and you don't know what they mean. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Side note with titles. um, I think something that's like super important. This is like so related to something we talked about way before, but it's so important because like with titles, like I think titles can mean something very different to immigrant individuals. So I remember the last um, employment place that I was at, I was briefly at a group, a group practice that was filled with um, actually white individuals. Right. And there was this discussion of a database where we upload different contacts and 
I remember one of the individual's colleagues said, well, I don't even think that we should put like doctor or master's level, like put your title at the end. This person just kind of wanted to equalize everybody and say like, it doesn't, you know, like I don't really, the doctor, it just like, it just makes me feel like it's just a, a title that I have at the end. It doesn't really define the work that I do, et cetera, et cetera. Totally understand where she's coming from. But I remember having this reaction of, hmm, this is kind of making me a little upset. Why is that? And I think it came back down to this idea of my parents came here and immigrated and busted their butts so that I could have this title. This title is not just like this privileged thing that I earned that I can just cast aside. It This title is a representation of immigration and hard work and being the first in my family to graduate college and earn like this title means something so much more it cannot be discarded and so I think that's something that I do want to mention to any type of immigrant individuals who are in a master's degree program or a doctorate degree program like the title that you have matters not because it puffs you up and because like now you can be, you know, greater than everybody else. There's a deeper meaning to the title that I think immigrant individuals should be proud of because it took that much more to get that title. And so I think own it and be proud of it. And it's okay if you want people to call you doctor or people to refer you as like my therapist who is a master level, like it does not matter whether you have an MA or a doctor, you, the title matters to you. So with that, there's this idea of when you go on psychology today, there's all these different titles, LMFT, MA, RP, whatever it is. And the interesting thing is like every state has different guidelines of um, who can register as a therapist. Colorado has this thing where, unfortunately, it's like this huge debate where honestly, a lot of different people can become a registered psychotherapist, so an RP, meaning you don't even have to have a graduate degree in psychology or training. You just have to take this exam, like the state exam, and then if you pass it, you can start seeing people in the community. There's a lot that can be uh, wrong with that. Now, there's also registered psychotherapists who are in a program who don't have their degree yet, but they can, you know, they do start seeing people, but they're just in training and they just have to identify as registered psychotherapist, right? It's important to know what the titles mean. So the first thing that I would recommend for people is understand what that title means behind people's names. Number two, call a lot of therapists. Find therapists that you think you might connect with, call them and ask any question that you are curious about, they might not be able to answer some of them, but you have every right to ask. You are the one paying for the therapy. You are the one that's trying to get better, right? So asking them, how many years of training have you had? How do you approach? Here are some of the symptoms I'm having. What is your approach to it? Because you want to, based on their answer, you might feel like, okay, yeah, that sounds like what I need. Or no, I think I need something else. So ask them about their approach. Ask them what type of training they've had um, with working in like with multicultural, whatever, whatever, whatever. Because many clinicians will also put that they work multiculturally, but I feel like that's a term that's just actually being thrown around a lot these days. Um, culturally competent, quote unquote. But oh man, it's actually a lot of work to define yourself as being culturally competent. So you want to understand, like, how do you define cultural competence? How do you work with different cultures? Get the answers from them and see, does it fit with you? 
Does it seem okay? Um, asking them like fee structure. Do they take insurance? If they don't take insurance, do they offer sliding scale? You are more than I think allowed to ask questions before you enter into a relationship with a therapist. So that's what I would do because it's free to just call them and be like, I have a couple questions. It doesn't cost any money. So that's where I would start. And then your second question was like, if they don't, if they can't go into therapy, what should they do? Is that what you said? Yeah. What can, what can people do like as an individual on their own? If you are, I think, lucky to have a support system, I would try to open up to the people that you have around you, right? So it might not be like you're having panic attacks or something kind of more severe, but if you are feeling a little sad or a little depressed or there's some stuff that's going on and you're like, man, I just kind of need somebody to like talk to about this. I suggest that they talk to people, learn to like feel comfortable talking about some of these things. And in the meantime, trying to find connection with other humans because that can revitalize a lot of people. So finding connections that fuel you, that make you feel like, hey, I'm not so alone in this world. Um, I'm not so alone in this situation can be really helpful. There's a lot of different organizations that provide like meetups or groups or, you know, finding different ways to engage in the community. I think that could be helpful. Not saying that you're going to feel like you're up for it. And if you're not, then like, that's totally fine. Honestly, if you feel like just staying at home and watching friends and like, okay, then do it. Now, if you're doing that five days a week, 20 hours a day, okay, (laughs) you might need to actually find professional help because those symptoms might indicate like some type of depression, right? So it really depends. I think the first thing is like try to see if you have a support system where you can connect with. And in the meantime, find therapists that fit your budget, fit your needs, fit what you need in terms of what you're seeking. I have one last question. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I... I wasn't supposed to talk as much, but I keep on talking. <laughs> um, so we we talked a lot about in the perspective of being a person of color mm-hmm. in general. It's like mm-hmm. the umbrella term that I'm using. Um, but for someone who's listening and they don't identify with uh-huh. anything that we talked about, or they don't identify as much, let's say, but they want to help, mm-hmm. or they want to be they want to be part of this systemic long term change. What and this is for any of us to answer, I think. But mm. what can they do to help in any way they can to whether break the cycle or um, help people like help people feel like they belong or I don't know, whatever yeah. it is. So it's such a like simple response, but it's actually something really hard to do. And what I tell people is, and this isn't just like, this can apply to anybody, like literally anybody. Because I think... The deeper thing that you're asking in the question is, is how do I stop fixing, trying to fix the problem and just sit with it, right? How do I just understand it? Does that sound fair? Mm, Sure. No? (laughs) What? (laughs) No. Are you trying to ask how to like be an, like an advocate and an ally in a way to actually help progress? Yes. So if I were to give an example, like a white person who grew up in the States and was born here, they cannot understand all the nuances of what the three of us just talked about, right? But they can have the, they can want to help and be like, how can I, again, those are good words, advocate or be an ally to, um, you know, work alongside with 
people like you who are trying to work directly with patients and break the cycle of intergenerational trauma? Or is there even a space for them? I guess that's a good question too. It's just like, do they even have a space to do that? <laughs> mm. It's really interesting. This idea of space, right? Because like, in a way where my mind goes, it's like, okay, are we asking to create space for maybe white individuals or other individuals who are not of color or biracial to, again, help them understand the process of what colored individuals are going through? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's exactly what you mean, but that's kind of the association that I'm having right now, right? And mm-hmm. I think there's always space for people to be human. I think there's always space for people to be curious about themselves and to see like, how do I want to help? First of all, why? The second question is why? Why do I want to help? Because is it coming from a place of like, oh my gosh, I need to do something and and help these like minority individuals feel so much better. Like, I don't know where it's coming from. And it might come from a very good place or it might come from a place of they just need to rescue people you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't know where it's coming from and I don't want to make assumptions about where it's coming from. But the second question that I would encourage them to ask themselves is why is this important to me? Is it because one, I really do care about mental health, no matter who it is, or is it coming from a different place? Mm -hmm. So the first, and I think one of the most important things that individuals who aren't from a like multicultural intergenerational, whatever background is to be curious about themselves. That's the first and foremost thing. because as they start to learn more about themselves and the way that they function in their own world and in their own society and how they engage with other people who are not like them, more questions are going to come up. And as they ask more questions, they're going to learn how to kind of navigate it in a way that feels healthy and it comes from a good place. And I know that might sound like such an unsatisfactory answer, but I think it's because there is no fix to this. There is no like... Here's a solution to what you can do to be an advocate. Like there's many ways you can be an advocate, but what I'm more curious about is why is that so important to you? Why are you advocating? Because once you understand the root of that, it's going to manifest in everything that you do, your actions, your words, the way that you engage, etc. So I think that's the most important thing is asking yourself why and being curious about it. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm very unsatisfied, but fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Can we can we explore that just for a second, though? Like, what kind of answer do you think would feel satisfactory to you? I I don't know. That's the thing. Is that I mean, that's the nature of what this field is too. Like in public health, it's just like there's never an answer. The answer is always systemic change, but that's like it takes years and years and years of multiple people doing multiple different kinds of work in all different angles and it's just it's never enough yeah i think like a prime example that i can give is like i think sometimes people think that being an advocate means like oh i have this one relational experience that i can relate to and i want to tell them that and tell them i can relate right so i remember one time where i was working and like i was sharing with my colleagues how difficult it was like navigating some of the the cultural nuances and dynamics of being married within like a Korean family, you know, and there's a lot of different things that come up and the pressures. And I remember, um, the, one of the person, the the people that I was working for. And again, I think this person was trying to be very, very kind and trying to relate. But what this person has said was like, you know, I, I understand what you're going through because my, my wife is Italian 
And she also experiences these like cultural pressures and norms and stuff. And like, I remember sitting there going like, well, thanks for trying to be kind, but it's not relatable at all. Like, it's not Mm -hmm. the same thing. It's just not. I think you think you understand the concept of the depth of what I'm, I'm experiencing, but you don't. So a thing not to do would be to kind of take your experience and then impose it on somebody else and say, I understand or like think to understand one thing, how to reframe it would be, you know what? I don't know if this feels similar to yours, Esther. This would have been helpful for me is I don't know if it relates, but what comes to mind for me is this experience that I've had with my wife and her family. And like, I'm wondering if there's similarities or differences mm-hmm. opening up a dialogue mm-hmm. where they're being curious about their experience and then saying like, Hmm, what is it about that experience? That's like making me think that it's similar to yours because now you have two platforms where two people are coming together and saying like, Oh yeah. in my culture, like this is what it is. And like, you know, so it opens up this other type of space where both are engaging in it. And it's not just one person coming in and saying like, I understand and I'm advocating for you. And so it feels different, you know? Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I like that. It's like, you're creating this. It's very simple. Just by adding a few, like two more sentences, Mm -hmm. you're adding like a bridge for conversation to happen versus just being like, Oh, this is very congruent to my experience. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think that's where the curiosity comes in because it's going to impact the way you phrase it, right? If you're curious about your own experience and you're asking, huh, why is it the way that, why is this coming up for me? And just even verbalizing that, it gives the other person an opportunity to be like, oh yeah, yeah, you're trying to, you're curious about your own self, not I'm curious about you, educate me. Right. It's more of this is my experience. And I'm like, so I'm thinking about all these different things. Like, have you thought about those things? Like, you know, it makes such a big difference in the way that you approach it. Yeah. Is there anything that you feel like we haven't touched on that you would really like to say? I mean, yeah. And I don't want to like disregard. There's a lot of, I think, Caucasian therapists who can engage in cultural discussions. Um, I think there are, and I don't think we're dismissing that, but you have to go through so like, you have to take the brunt of that exhaustion of finding that person. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But then it's also, I don't want to say like, just because the person is a person of color, that they're going to understand your experience either. Oh yeah. Because there are some individuals who, because you know, therapists don't talk about themselves in the sessions, like just because they look non-white, they might be adopted. They might have no ties to a, like any part of Asia or any part of Asian culture. And they literally grew up with white parents. And they, even though outwardly they look Asian, they identify as white, you know? And so that's one thing. It's like, you're, you're not going to really know based off of just what you see in the picture, the assumptions that you have. I think you want to feel more connected. That's why I say, yes, it is a lot of work finding a therapist. And I think that's why it's so important to call and ask questions and to get more information because you will know, just like when we talk about certain cultural things, all three of us can nod our heads and laugh and do these things because just even in the little things we say, we get it. So when you talk to a therapist over the phone and you ask certain questions, I do believe you're going to pick up on things where you're like, okay, this feels really good. I think you're understanding what I'm saying and go with it. Like trust your gut. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks, Sunny. Thank you, Sunny. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. And that's the episode. Thank you so much, Esther, for talking with us. As a reminder, you can reach her at park underscore psychotherapy on Facebook and Instagram and at www.dresterpark.com. And there are so many resources for this episode and they will all be online as well as the transcript on our website. As a reminder, if you have any questions, you can always reach us at globalcaveat at gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at globalcaveat. And thank you to all of you, our listeners and supporters, for helping this podcast run. And a special thanks to Cordell Glass for producing our music. Thanks for listening.